Today I want to share with you about two atoms who changed the world. Two atoms who changed the world. You know, we use that phrase kind of loosely sometimes about somebody changed, changed our life or something changed our life. And there are some things that do change our life to some degree. For example, I'm glad for whoever and all those people who invented and caused us and enabled us to have electricity. I remember when I was a small child living at home and we didn't have electricity. I'm glad for electricity. A lot of things we have because we have electricity. I'm also glad for several other great witty inventions that make our life a little bit easier in areas. But these two guys I'm going to talk about today, they changed our life far beyond those type of inventions. For not so good reasons and for absolutely wonderful reasons. So we're going to talk about two atoms. And if we talk about two atoms, we have to start in the book of Genesis to get that first guy. Have you ever thought about what Adam, the first Adam, was really like before the fall? Just think with me a minute about what he must have been like before Satan came into the picture, before sin existed, before sickness existed, before death occurred, where everything was pristine, great, and there was nothing wrong with anything. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of blows our mind when you start thinking about that in depth. This guy was given dominion over the earth. One guy. Can you imagine that? You know the reason why he could be given that? Because God had a plan. God had a purpose. And he entrusted Adam, his man, he created with dominion. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verse 28, he said, He gave him dominion over the birds, the fish, the, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that moves. He had dominion over them. He created Eve out of Adam's, one of Adam's rib and brought them together. They had a perfect marriage. The only one that has ever existed. A lot of people have good ones, but he had a perfect one for some time. We don't know how long they lived together perfectly before the fall, but there was a time span there that they had a perfect marriage in every respect simply because there was no hindrances. There were no 
communication or miscommunication. There's no lack of communication. There was no griping and complaining. Well, (laughs) there was nothing adverse to absolute harmony in every respect. Have you ever thought about Adam's magnificent mind that he had before the fall? An example of that would be in the book of Genesis chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 19. God allowed him the privilege to name all of the animals. I looked up this week and I tried to determine how many species of animals there are. And what I came up with was nobody knows for sure. But the estimate, the best estimate that I read was somewhere between one and two million animal species. And there wasn't an Encyclopedia Britannica. There wasn't a world book. There wasn't even Wikipedia to determine what you call this particular animal. He had a brilliant mind and was able to name every species of animal. Wow. And in addition to that, he and Eve were given a perfect dwelling place, the Garden of Eden. Absolutely perfect. And not only that, they had a perfect relationship with Father God. So that in the cool of the day, the Lord came down and communed with them. Can you imagine what that may have been like? It's hard for us to even comprehend the possibility of that occurring. Because why? Because we have things that get in our way sometimes. In fellowshipping with God, right? We have too many things we're involved with. We get distracted so easily. And then maybe the communication isn't perfect between us and God. Maybe we don't hear Him as clearly as we would like to or should be. Things distract. Things. Things. Get in our way sometimes. Time constraints, and the list goes on. So, thinking about Adam, he was given dominion. He had a magnificent mind. He had a perfect dwelling place. He had perfect unity with his wife, and he had perfect unity and fellowship with God. Don't mess it up, Adam. But what did he do? Chapter 3. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice Satan came along and he first questioned what God said. He first questioned it. Did you know Satan's attack against us is exactly the same way today? 
you're reading along in Scripture, maybe you're reading in the New Testament in the promises of God, and you think, this is great, this promise is wonderful. It's almost too good to be true. And suddenly there comes a thought, that's because it isn't true. Questioning what God has said. That was his number one. And we read on further. And he said, uh, she said, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice her mistake here. First mistake was she added to what God said. God didn't say, we don't have a recorded incident in Scripture where God said you can't touch it. God said you can't eat of it. But she added, but you can't touch it. And then, he not only, that is, Satan not only questioned, he contradicted what God said. And he went ahead to to say, the serpent said to her, you will not surely die. He contradicted. He questioned it. Now he's contradicting what God says. And know this, Satan still does that in his attacks against believers today. Thirdly, he said, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He implied that up until that point, God had kept things back from them that could have been theirs. You know, Satan still does that today. If you just did, if you just believed, if you just acted, if you just did this, then everything would be better than it is now. As if God had been keeping something back. Also, notice the connection here between this. You remember in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the two stories about how Lucifer became Lucifer and got kicked out of heaven and that that whole story That one of the things he said in, I believe it's the book of Isaiah, he said, I will ascend to the the heights. And then the last one of those I wills was, I will be like the most high God. That's what he said. Look, that was included here in what he's saying to Adam and Eve. And you, let's see, I lost my place. That you shall know, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 5. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, it was never God's plan for Adam and Eve to know good and evil from experience. It was God's plan they know only of that from what he said was right or wrong, good or evil. Not that they should ever experience it. They should have been so pure and holy that they didn't even know what evil was by experience. But Satan, since he wanted to be like God, he implemented, implanted that thought into their minds at the same time. And the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And that was the fall. They totally disobeyed God. Have you ever thought if you were in their place, what might have happened? I wouldn't do that. I'm not eating an apple or whatever the fruit of that tree was. 
No, no, I wouldn't. I probably would. We'd probably do the same thing they did. Facing what they faced. We might have turned our back on what God said. That magnificent relationship with God. That magnificent family. That magnificent mind of Adam. And all that the, the, the Garden of Eden provided for them. We might have done the same. So we can't really be too hard on them. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In that verse 3.6, when she saw, she lusted after it. It was desirable to make you wise. Pride comes in there. 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 8.1, it says, Knowledge lifts up, but love edifies. Knowledge causes us to be proud, but love edifies or builds up. It doesn't lift up the person, it lifts up other things. James 1.14 and 15 says, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the way it works today, folks, in our life today. So what are we saying here? Well, we're saying that this Adam opened the door to all that is sinful. This Adam opened the door to death. This Adam opened the door to sickness and disease. This Adam opened the door to strife. This Adam opened the door to pride. This Adam opened the door to broken relationship with God. This Adam opened the door to broken relationship between husband and wife and families. This Adam, and the list goes on. Enough of that. Let's go to the last Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as though one man, or I should say just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all because all sinned. There, were, there was no sin in the human race. There was no death in the human race until that sin. Do you know if, there were, if you and I lived in a condition where there was no sin, there would be no death. If we lived in an environment where there was no sin, there would be no death. But that's not true at this present time. We're living in an environment because Adam opened the door by disobedience. Now, because of that sin, there is death. And he said death has spread to all because all have sinned. I want to give you something to think about. And you'll, you'll need to think about this over probably several sessions of thinking about it. Do you realize that no one is going to be judged or condemned because of Adam's sin? They're not. Every one of us will be judged because of our own sin, rebellion, or failure to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. 
Scripture says in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But now read verse 18 that says, If you believe, you will not be judged or condemned. But if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you will be judged and condemned. Every person is judged based on have they made Jesus Lord or not, in spite of Adam. Let me say that again. Every person is judged in the sight of God based on the fact if they have made Jesus the Lord of their life. Every person. It's not because of the family you're in. It's not because of what Adam did. It's not because of society around us. What have you done about Jesus Christ's lordship? If you have made him Lord, hey, you got a good future. If you don't make him Lord and you leave this life without having made him Lord... The statement of impending doom, which is condemnation, has already been spoken. And the only way it's released or removed is when you change the direction of your life from sin to salvation through Jesus Christ. You make him the Lord of your life. And that statement of impending doom or condemnation gets blotted out by the blood of Jesus. All right? So you're not going to die and go to eternal lostness because of Adam's sin. It's because you haven't made Jesus Lord. You make Jesus Lord, you got a good future. And all of these bad things that Adam did, the provision to wipe all of that out has been made possible and been given to those who have made Jesus Lord. I want to look at several verses in the book of Romans, chapter 5. First, a couple of them in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to look some, at some of these verses to see what the first Adam did and what the second or last Adam provided for us and how it removed it. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one says, For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So we were spiritually dead as well as physically die because of what Adam did. But through the last Adam, we are made spiritually alive when we made Jesus Lord. And on that day when Jesus returns, you're going to have a resurrected body because of that last Adam. So what is he doing? He's reversed it. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brings life. Or I should say the last Adam brings life. 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now the context of this is he's writing to the church at Corinth. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. And in the church we expect people to be born again and know Jesus as Lord. So in Adam, everyone dies, but in Christ, everyone shall be made alive. Romans 5.15 says, For if by one man's offense many died, 
Much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. By one offense, death came and affects all. Much more. You know, I like the fact that God always provides more than enough. He provides more than enough grace that you and I need in everyday life. More than enough grace. Have you thought about this God that we serve? He, there's, I don't know, there's billions of people on the earth. I forget how many there are now. But there's billions of people on planet earth. And Jesus can minister to every one of them every need they have all at the same time for all of their lifetime and His provision is never diminished. That's the God we serve. That's the Savior we have. So it said here, because of one man's offense, many died, but much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. Verse 16, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. See, when you made Jesus the Lord of your life, that statement of impending doom or condemnation that you had written on you, because again, John 3.18 says you're already condemned because you didn't believe. So that statement has been accredited to your account already because you didn't believe. But when you make Jesus Lord, that statement against you that of impending doom, you're going to spend eternity away from the presence of God, that was removed by the grace and by the blood of Jesus. Verse 17, For by one man's offense, death reigned through that one, much more, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I like that. You say, well, I can't live a victorious life because, because I got a fallen nature because of what Adam and Eve did. Folks, quit blaming them. Quit blaming them. You know, we learned the blame game all the way back in the garden. Remember when Jesus found out? Correction. He didn't find out. He knew what was going on. But when he confronted them, she said, this serpent deceived me. Got down to Adam. This. What finally gets to the serpent And you put a curse on him. My point is this. The blame game started back then. Adam says, this woman you gave me. She gave me to eat. Wasn't my fault. She made that apple look so good I couldn't refuse. Oh yeah. My point is... Those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, and that's you, if Jesus is your Lord, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. 
a message that I see involved in that or contained in that is this. The possibility to reign in life is available to every believer. But it doesn't happen automatically. It's available as a gift, the gift of righteousness. But for you to reign in life, you have to do it through the one Jesus Christ. Meaning we have to appropriate and be obedient to the instructions that he has for our life. And if we do that, then it's not only a possibility, it's an actual experience. Verse 18, Romans 5. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. If we disobey like Adam, we get condemnation. If we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life and receive his righteousness, we get justification. Justification means you stand before God just as if you had never sinned. You stand in God just as Adam did before sin. Just as if I had not sinned. Justification. Adam, as a result of their disobedience, sin comes. Death comes, etc. But in Jesus Christ, the redemption of the blood of Jesus, we get justified. We're standing there like Adam did before the fall. So, but, but sin exists. It does. Death exists. It does. There's a devil out there that's, you know, causing havoc in our world. Yeah, that's right. But none of that is greater than the atonement that Jesus provided for you. In the atonement he provided for you, he provided what it takes to overcome all of that. Hallelujah. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous because Jesus properly, completely fulfilled the plan and qualifications given by the Father. Because of what He did, we have righteousness. You see, none of us could qualify to be the sacrifice for sin. There wasn't a human being in the creation apart from Jesus Christ that could have qualified to be the atoning sacrifice. And because of what he did, we are righteous. We're righteous. When God looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Jesus. Let that sink in. When he looks at you, because Jesus is your Lord, he looks at you through the blood of Jesus, meaning he has no sight of sin. He can't see sin. When you really, really get that, it changes the way you live. 
It changes the way you respond to life situations. And when that slew foot comes around and whispers in your ear, you're no good, you're not righteous, you're not a good person. Don't you remember when you failed this way and failed that way? And pretty soon, if you listen to all that, you want to crawl under the carpet. But if you know that Jesus is Lord in your life, and that thought or idea comes to you, you rise up and say, absolutely not. I refuse to believe that. The Word of God says I've been made righteous because of what Jesus Christ did. I am a child of God, therefore I'm cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and you have got to leave me alone. See, that's just plainly what Scripture says here. By one man's obedience, many have been made righteous. Folks, if Jesus is your Lord, you're never going to be any more righteous than you are today. Never. You are as righteous in the sight of God as it gets. Because you can't get any more righteous than the righteousness He provides. I am not going to be righteous when I get to heaven. I've been righteous since August the 9th, 1957. Are you here? You see that? Through what Jesus did, we're righteous. Not because we're good. Not because we've obeyed 100%. Because none of us have. Just settle that right now up front. None of us have obeyed 100%. We've goofed up probably more than we would like to admit. But thank God, God is not temperamental. Well, you goofed up, pow. The Bible says he knows what's in man. Reading book of John chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 28, 29, right before you get to chapter 3, verse 1, said... Jesus knew what was in man. There was a man sent from God whose name was John and so on. Jesus knew what was in us. He still knows what's in us. And when the Father sees us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You see that? The reason that God can see you righteous all the time is because His grace is constant. You and I are saved or born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a gift. And it's constantly working in our life. Now let me throw out another strange thought to some. Do you realize how gracious God is to non-believers? The grace of God is working on behalf of of every human being. Every human being has been touched and is alive today because of God's grace. Because if God withdrew His grace from anyone, they'd be dead. And now, to, to you and I who have made Jesus Lord, we're, we're walking in an, a, an, a grace, a more specific and a anointed grace that's even greater than the grace that lost people have. Because, why? We're God's kids. 
He has a calling on your life. Remember what Paul said, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. The word grace is not only unmerited favor, it means divine ability. That's the part that enables believers to live victorious in the midst of sin, death, and all the junk in the world, is that part of God's grace that includes His divine ability that He's infused us with so that we can do what He's called us to do. As I said, God's grace is abundant to every human being. But to those who have made Jesus Lord, that part of the grace that includes His ability is working in us in a greater measure to enable us to obey God and do what He wants. We've had a number of people here in this church that have gone on the mission field for either long-term or short-term. I've been on several places in a short-term basis. And usually when I go on one of those trips, I'm excited to go. I'm looking forward to it. I've prepared for it. You know, I'm ready to teach or whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm excited about it. But you know, even though when I go, I usually know when I'm coming home. And usually about a day before time to come home, I feel this grace begin to kind of fizzle out a little bit. Because I know I'm coming home and the environment's going to be different. But while I'm there, I'm, going, I'm on a mission. I'm ready. I've prepared. I'm ready to do it. But when it gets close to time to leave, I can feel kind of the grace lift. In the 80s, 85, 86, or 86, 87, I went to uh, Nigeria on a mission trip. One 85 and one year in 86, the next, I think. Anyway, I have a lot of quirks in my life. You people may know some of them. (laughs) One of them, I like punctuality. We were picked up, Chuck Flynn and myself, we were taken to where we were going to stay. And the guy told us, said, we'll be by to pick you up at 6.30 because the service starts at 7. Now, in America, if, if, if I'm told that, I believe that. I have no reason to disbelieve that. If I'm told I'm going to pick you up at 6.30, I'm going to be ready before 6.30. So when you come by to pick me up, I can walk out and get in your car and away we go, right? I found out on that trip, they they operate on a different standard, a different clock. I mean, they were speaking English, but their mentality was different. So I'm in there. Man, I'm ready at 6 o'clock. Chuck, my friend... He's still laying in, taking a nap. I said, hey, Chuck, you better wake up, buddy. They're coming at 6.30. He said, no, I've been here before. They won't be here till 7.30. I said, what? He said, they won't be here till maybe even after 7.30. I said, but the service starts at 7. He said, I know it, but not for us. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, just wait and see, and you'll understand after tonight. And I said, okay. So 7.30 came, no driver. I thought, man, I missed half, half hour of service. What, what's going on? He said, it'll be all right. About 10 minutes to 8, the driver comes. And we go out and get in the car. I say to the driver, I said, are, are, are we missing the service? He said, oh, yeah, they have an hour and 45 minutes of worship. 
So you get in on some of that. I said, oh, okay. So we got there. They're having praise and worship. And the usher at the back door waved his hand. He had a signal for the praise and worship leader at the platform. And when he waved his hand at them, they, they stopped the music. And, and the guy in charge, MC in that service, came, got the mic, and introduced us and made us walk, you know, stop the praise and worship. To me, that was rude to do that. But stop the praise and worship, introduced us, we walk in, take our seat, then they pick up praise and worship again. So I'm, I'm learning new things. I've never been in that environment before. So uh, the second day, Service starts at 10 o'clock, and I'm supposed to be teaching that morning. And i already been told we're going to have 30 minutes of, of, of praise and worship, and then you've got an hour and a half to teach. It's all right, man. Praise God. I'm ready for this. What time are they going to pick us up? He said, oh, I'll be there at 9.30. Chuck said, no, he won't. He'll be here at 10.15. I said, you got there at 10.15. And it was a 10-minute drive to the church where we were going. So we got there, repeated the praise and worship thing just all over again. Got us up on the platform. They sang about three more songs. <laughs> and then I got to do teaching. Okay. So that night service starts at 7 o'clock. Said to the driver, what time are you going to pick us up? He said, 6.30. And after he left, Chuck said, he'll be here at a quarter to eight. He got there at a quarter to eight. So you know what I learned over there? I learned that the clock doesn't mean a thing. It is totally useless. We needed a calendar. We didn't need a clock. We needed a calendar. And now I said all that to say, you know, we get... We get accustomed to our society and the way we do things. But not everybody does things that way. And a lot of times we have been customized to live according to the principles of sin and sinfulness. But God's kingdom operates on a different time and calendar. And guess who's going to have to adjust? You know, when I, all the time I was there, I had to adjust to them. I couldn't expect them to adjust to me. I had to adjust to them. Because it was their culture. You and I are now in the kingdom of God. And we can squawk all we want to. God, you're not here on time. He'll be here on time every time. It may not be our clock time. But it'll be His time. Because we're living in His kingdom. We're living in the kingdom of God on earth today as it is. And we're going to have to adjust our lifestyle to fit that. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, might, or even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. As we've borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. In other words, because of the fall, everybody has been born with a propensity to sin and disobey. It's just something about us that just wants to do that. And we've borne that image. But just as we have, we should now bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. He's not the second Adam, he's the last Adam. There are no more. The first Adam plunged creation into sin and death. The second Adam, the last Adam, purchased us out of all of that to restore us back to what Adam had before the fall that we might live the life for all eternity that God has planned for us. Go to the book of Revelation. I want to look at a few verses. One of the things that's going to come to pass in the complete restoration of all things during the time of the new heaven and earth and eternity... Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So wait a minute. Isn't God our father now, and we're his children now, and don't we have all these things available? Most of them we do. We just haven't lived in all of them yet. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's the, last, that's the last part of Adam's curse that's going to be done away with is death. And that's going to occur for us at the return of Jesus. When he comes, then death itself will be removed. Now, Jesus defeated death already in his own resurrection. He defeated it. It's defeated. All of the price has been paid through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The price is paid, but not all of it has been appropriated so that we can live in it experientially yet. Death will be the last thing that will be wiped out. But we can be an overcomer in every realm of life today. Well, what about those people that were resurrected under Jesus' ministry and others? Well, they weren't resurrected in the end time sense. They were restored to life. Do you know there's a difference between those two? The people that Jesus restored to life in his ministry and the disciples restored to life in their ministry died again. They didn't get a glorified body. They just got a physical body that was remade and restored. And they eventually they died again. But the resurrection is different than that. You're going to not only get a restored body, you're going to get a glorified body, which is not subject to death, disease, the devil, doubt, any such thing. That's a big difference. Okay? So at that moment, in ever every respect, you are going to overcome all these things. You're going to inherit 
everything. The New Jerusalem 21.10, the Bible said, Descend out of heaven from God. 21.27 said, There shall no means enter it anything that defiles, causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. Going to live eternally. That means there won't be any devil. There's no disease. There's no sickness. Because there is a tree of life. In chapter 22 and verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing or health of the nations. You're going to have an eternal body free of all imperfections. Now that, that's something to think about. A body that is free of all imperfections. Not subject to disease and death. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 3 says, And there will be no curse, no more curse. The curse of Genesis 3 are going to be removed. Totally gone. No more curse. 22, 4, Revelation says, And they, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead. What did Adam and Eve have before the fall? The Bible said the voice of God came down in the cool of the day and communed with them. Perfect communion. Perfect fellowship. But what happened when sin, when Moses went up on the mount to get the Ten Commandments, he wasn't allowed to see the face of God. But guess what's going to happen when when God winds all of this up and eternity begins, you're going to see him face to face unhindered. You won't have to cover your face or veil your face because that's all gone. Now you have perfect fellowship with God in every respect. So I end with this. Everything you lost by the first Adam the second Adam regained it for you. And some. And some. So from that point forward, you're going to be able to spend eternity fanning yourself by the river of life. No. No. You're going to be serving and worshiping him. And you will be able without hindrance, able to totally fulfill the plan and purpose for your individual life as well as the whole kingdom of God. Because there's no death, there's no devil, there's no sin, there's no sickness or any such thing. And you're going to have perfect fellowship and be able to totally fulfill your life that God meant for you to have. Totally. So, well, that's all in good. But I'm not there yet. Well, what are we going to do about it? First, let's quit blaming Adam 
when a lot of the things that happen in our life come because we made dumb choices. I don't know about you, but I've caused a lot of my own problems. There's about six people that are nodding, so I guess you think you did too. Yeah, I've caused a lot of my own problems. And then rebuke the devil for it. Well, does the devil do things? Oh, you better believe he does lots of things. But sometimes the, the real situation is closer to home than that. Sometimes people even blame God for things. Well, Lord, I don't know why you don't do. And we should stop when we said, I don't know, and put the period there. It's not his fault that what he provided you and I are not living in. It's not his fault. He's already made it possible. The only thing that's be, that is yet to be totally obliterated is death, physical death. Spiritual death has already been removed from you if you know Jesus as Lord. That's already been taken care of. The only thing else is physical death is yet to be removed. It's already been provided for its removal, but it still exists. So what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to challenge us today. Make sure that Jesus is Lord. Make sure that Jesus is Lord. I didn't ask you if you're a church member. I didn't ask you if you prayed after John Doe when he said a prayer on TV. Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus Lord? Have you truly repented that has changed your direction and made him the Lord of your life? Is Jesus Lord? Second question. Are you obeying God every way that you know He wants you to? In other words, are you doing what He told you to do in His Word or the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Phil is going to start teaching Wednesday night about the kingdom of God and how to make disciples. You know, in the Great Commission, go teach, disciple all nations, teaching them to Obey all things that I've commanded you. And that four-letter word, some people don't like. Well, I thought I'm saved by grace. You are. Totally, 100%. But obedience is still required for service. It's still required for service. Obedience isn't required to get you or keep you saved because you can't do that. You can't obey enough to do that. That's something that God already did through Jesus' atonement. But that's an act of service is obedience. So are we doing what God has told us to do? I had a lady in my office a number of years ago. and She was telling me the, a problem, a situation she was dealing with. So I was questioning her along this line. Okay, what has God told you to do? And she gave me some things that she said God had told her to do. I said, okay, let's go through them one by one, and you tell me which ones you've done. Well, I I did that, and I did that, but I didn't do this. 
So why didn't you do that? I didn't want to. I told her, thank you for your honesty. Do you know, sometimes that's, that's the key issue. We don't want to do it. Lord, I really don't want to do that. But if I'm going to obey Him, we have to say like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. You know, the cross wasn't a pleasant experience for Jesus. But the will of the Father was supreme for Him. And I suppose that every one of us have been required by God to do some things that we didn't want to do. But when you finally say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to do it. Or I'm willing to be made willing, but do it quickly. And don't be like the prophet Jonah who had to become willing with seaweeds wrapped around his head. But you know, he got willing. I think God may have some big fish still. But they may go by different names. If we don't obey and respond like God wants us to. So, are you obeying God? Are you doing what He wants you to do? You have, only you can answer that question. Your wife, your husband, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your grandparents, your cousin, seven times removed, they can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that. And if you answer those two, get them correct, then you're putting yourself in a good position to where you can enter into and experience more of what is available for the victorious life on planet Earth today. If you get the right answer to those two. You're putting yourself in a good position to experience the blessings that God has provided.